All right, if you have your own copy of the Bible, please open it up to the New Testament. We're going to be looking at the book of Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 27 through 30. And my microphone is on, and your cell phones are off, right? At least the ringer is turned off, all right? Uh, so Philippians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 27 through 30 today. All right, beginning in verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh a gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So our message today uh, on these uh, few verses um, is part of a series that we've been in on Sunday morning uh, going through the book of Philippians um, going further in the joy of faith we find that to be the theme in chapter 1 verse 25 and then uh, the series proposition is found in chapter 4 uh, verse 4 rejoice in the Lord always and so each message is about going further in faith, but also finding a way to rejoice in our faith as Christians. And so today's message title is The Joy of Striving and Suffering Together. So let me just pull out to your attention here. Um, the suffering together is found in verse 29, for to you it has been granted in behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but also to do what? All right, did you know there's a Christian theology of suffering? And a lot of Christians have a hard time understanding that theology. So we'll, we'll look at that today. Uh, but then also, uh, the first part of our proposition here is that uh, you be standing or striving together. All right, so the joy of striving and suffering together. Does that sound a little unusual? Hello? Are you there? Okay. So let's look at this today, the joy of striving together. So we have two thoughts that we're looking at that, the, the politics of striving together and the athletics of striving together. Um, if you're a new Christian, you might go through several phases in your walk with Jesus. First of all, it becomes being a partaker with God of that new life, that new family life that God has given to you. And you enter into a, a family, a fellowship, where the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the central focus of what's going on in that church. And so that's one of the things that makes Calvary unique here in Hollister, is that the good news of Jesus is the focal point of what we're doing. So 
many new believers enter into that fellowship. Uh, then you become servants. You enter into uh, chapter 1, verse 25, the furtherance of the gospel, the furtherance of the faith. Okay? Uh, it's your job then to come together as a family, as a church in your community, and to advance in that community. Let the gospel and let your faith advance. Um, then you turn into soldiers, all right, um, defending the faith of the gospel. And we'll talk about the definite article that's associated with the word faith and uh, explain a little bit about what that means. And so this is a very significant uh, section in the letter that Paul is writing to the believers here in Philippi. He urges them to dismiss their pride and set aside uh, themselves to come together, to, to live and to serve together in unity. Um, anything else falls less, uh, falls short, is less than what God intends for a local church. Now, this section starts off with a, a very unusual word, all right? So if you go back and uh, you look at verse 27, um, you look at it, what's the first word? Only. So what does this mean? And how, how does this impact our message today? All right, if you go back and you read the previous section that we preached on, Paul believed that he would be released from prison and that it would be to their benefit if he was released because then he could help them uh, go further in the faith. And so that's his only reason for wanting to get out of prison, is to help them have the joy and the progress of their faith, the advancement of their faith. So he's, he's not looking to get out of prison uh, for any other reason. So he's very interested uh, that they then would join him in his efforts, because that's what he's all about. He's about getting them to go further in their faith with Jesus, to advance the gospel. And so his exhortation to them then is to conduct themselves in a way that's worthy of that mission. So as a student of history, whenever a country seems to get into domestic and internal problems, one strategy that leadership has is to change the emphasis to international affairs. So a lot of kings, when they were having problems, they would just go ahead and start a war, right? And uh, that would take the problems off of what's going on in their own country and put the emphasis on the world stage. Well, let's not put it down on such a, uh, a political level as that, or even though we are talking about here in the first point, the politics of striving together. But when we're united for one mission as a church and we're all having that heartbeat, then we're all setting aside our own opinions and our own pride. And we only have one thing that we're trying to accomplish. And that's the furtherance and the advancement of the gospel. And when you get distracted from that, then you focus on your own problems and then there are problems. So since their need uh, then is uh, of Paul's ministry, then this is his only reason for wishing to remain on earth it would behoove the Philippians and those in Hollis or Calvary Baptist Church 
to receive that ministry with an open heart, as Paul is telling them, and to obey the Spirit-given instructions that he gives to them and grow in their Christian experience. All right, so we have our first point up here, the joy of striving together. So let's go back to our text, and um, we'll pick this out, okay? Um, we find this in verse 27 toward the end of the verse. Uh, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, doing what? Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, striving together doesn't mean that you're fighting with one another. All right, That's not what striving here in this context means. It means working very carefully and working hard at the unity that's so essential. When you go forward in the community with the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. And so you've got to give every effort to this kind of activity. This is what Paul is saying. It's not only good for the Philippian church, it's good for Calvary Baptist Church or any Bible-believing church in no matter what community they're in. They, they have to work together and have to be very careful to strive together. You're working really hard at doing this together in that particular unity. And so this word only, um, this is the only thing that we should seek. We have to live as citizens, all right? So let's look at this here. It says uh, in verse 27, as becometh the gospel of Christ. Now, Philippi, and why we're talking about the politics of striving together, all right? So let me uh, point this out here. The, the verb that Paul uses is our word uh, politics. Behave the way that citizens are supposed to behave. All right? Um, only let your conversation as becometh the gospel of Christ. So Philippi was one of these uh, free autonomous zones in the ancient Roman Empire. And they had citizenship rights within their own city, but then they were also citizens of the Roman Empire. And so in the city of Philippi, they were to live as becometh the rights of citizenship and the responsibilities of citizenship of the empire of Rome. Well, the believers in the church at Philippi then are a little colony of a greater kingdom called the kingdom of God. And they then are supposed to live and enjoy the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities of that heavenly citizenship uh, representing the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so that's why we're talking about the politics of striving together. And there's only one political agenda, and that's to bring glory to the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and to advance his gospel. And so they were to behave. The, the word conversation in your King James Bible is an old word. Uh, the conduct or your manner of living. Have you ever heard people criticize the church that it's filled with hypocrites? Oh, come on, you can be awake out there. Shake your heads if you've ever heard that argument, right? Shame on us. Because we're not being obedient to what the Holy Spirit put here in Philippians 1.27. We're not showing those who need Jesus what it is really like to be a citizen of heaven. 
we're either a citizen of this earth or we act like citizens of hell. So there's no excuse for that kind of conduct. And so we're the citizens of heaven, why we're here on earth, and we ought to behave like heaven's citizens. And so he brings this up again over in chapter 3. Let's just turn there for just a second. Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 20. For our conversation, that's our manner of conduct, our lifestyle, is where? In heaven. Ooh. There's the conformity, there's the standard by which we want to live by. From whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So live like that heavenly citizen. And so Paul is asking them that question, and maybe it's a good question for you to ask yourself. Is my manner of conduct, is my way of living consistent? Is it worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does it take the gospel and make it attractive? Does it make it look beautiful? Can people see that your life has changed the way you think the way you you act is it is it been worthy of the gospel and so the apostle says hey listen um, whether I am able to come and see you in verse 27 or else I am absent I may hear of your affairs finish this phrase for me when the boss is away Okay. Now, do you know the Christian work ethic is so much different? Because we have a heavenly master, a heavenly employer that is always watching. Um, so the, if you're at work and there's downtime, Do you just stand around and do nothing for hours? Or do you at least try to polish the brass or clean the window? All right? Do something with your time. Uh, if you can, prepare and get ahead. Scout your work out. Plan it out. Use that time wisely. Not because your employer is expecting you to do so, but because your heavenly master is watching. And um, so Paul is saying, hey, whether I come and I can personally see this or whether I never get to come, but I do receive reports about what's going on, I want you to live in such a way. Um, hey, parents, isn't this a wonderful thing when you give your children some uh, responsibility in the home to do and you go away and uh, you walk them through it, you explain the cleaning process, uh, and then you go away, and when you come back, you expect it to be done, right? Um, but here's something that I've always learned, all right, that was taught to me. It's not what you expect that gets done, but what you inspect that gets done, okay? And so Paul is saying, the report's going to get back. I'm going to hear an inspection on this. Either I'm going to see it, in person, or I'm going to hear about it, but 
Is your life worthy of the gospel? Are you living a consistent Christian life? And so this is the, the politics of this. Um, worthy of the gospel, is it, is it matching up to the cost? Um, you know, does your walk and your talk match? Do your, your actions match up to what you profess as a believer? Um, God is always present. So it's worth remembering that the world around us knows only the gospel that you show them. All right, so here's a little poem. Uh, the author is unknown. Are you writing a gospel, a chapter a day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say? Men read what you write, whether faithful or true, just what is the gospel according to you. You have neighbors that will never set foot inside of a church building. But they'll read your life like an open book. And they have some expectations, don't they? And so, is your life a true gospel that they can read? Now, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried and rose again. That's a direct quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 3 and 4. That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. You know, there's only one good news. All right, let me go off here, here to a little rabbit trail. Oh, hello! I'm Elder So-and-so from the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. I'm here to share with you Another testament, another gospel of Jesus Christ. Bah! Shut the door. There is no other gospel. There's only one gospel. Don't try to listen. You'll get deceived. They lie through their teeth. Oh, we believe that too. We believe that too. We believe that too. We believe that too. Then why are you different from me? Well, because we don't believe the same thing. All right? That's why there's a difference. And so the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. There's only one good news of salvation. Any other gospel is a false gospel. This is what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. The message of the gospel is good news that sinners can become the children of God through faith in Jesus, God's Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What's the condition? Whosoever believes. Put your trust in what Jesus has done. And see, here's why the Mormons, with their another testament of Jesus Christ, are so wrong. Their definition of grace is, for by grace are you saved after all you have done. That's a quote from their book. But that's not grace according to God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not as a result of works. That's the Bible way. So here, in a picture, okay, two little column graph chart, uh, chart here, okay? And the Mormon definition is you shade in a little bit. 
but you're still going to fall short. And Jesus is going to be so kind that he'll accept your effort and make up the difference and you'll get into heaven. Whereas in the Bible definition of grace, you can't put any shading in the column. It's 0% self-effort. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. And so it all comes down to the grace and faith that if we accept God's grace, that we have no religious merit, then put our faith in him, then he takes us from zero to 100% based upon the merit of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's salvation. That's grace. That's the gospel. And so we're members of the same team, and we should work cooperatively. All right, now let's look at the athletics of striving together okay so now paul changes the illustration from politics to athletics um, so we look here in verse uh, 27 that striving together at the end of that verse this is where we get our english word athletics so paul pictures the local church as a team and as a team we must remember that it is teamwork that wins victories. Do you remember the, the story of the 1980 uh, U.S. hockey team in the Winter Olympics? Do you remember that? Oh, come on, you can shake your heads. Some of you guys, how many people like hockey? Okay, a few of you. All right, so you know what we're talking about here, all right? And uh, so it was an upset. Uh, the United States uh, Olympic team uh, won gold that year. And it was a stunner because we beat the Soviet Union. Uh, but one of the things that the American coach did to get his team ready for the Olympics was he had them uh, skate sprints, uh, what you might call suicide sprints, until they were ready to, to puke and vomit. And then he would ask a question. Who do you play for? And these young men would say, Oh, I play for the University of, and they would give such and such a name. He'd say, let's do some more sprints. Okay? And they would just be totally exhausted, and they wouldn't get it. And finally, the light bulb turned on to one guy, and he's like, I play for the United States of America. It's like, you've got it. Okay? So, who are you living for? There's one goal. We have to be a team to honor Christ, do his will. We have to work together. We can reach this goal. We can win God's prize. We're doing this together to glorify the Lord. And so we have to do this. The, the minute that any of us begins to forget that we're part of a team, then that's the moment that it all breaks down. When we're looking out for our own glory, when the teamwork disappears, divisions and competition take over. Um, listen, we have one master, the Lord Jesus. We're on his team. Now, let's just 
take a break here and, and think of something, okay? I don't know if any of you were thinking this. Well, pastor, you left our team, okay? No, I was called to go somewhere else. And I'm on your team until the day I leave, to the very minute I leave. I will continue discipling. I will continue sharing the gospel. I will continue shepherding you. Because Jesus left this world, did he not? But he didn't leave his team. He loved them. He loved his own, the scripture says, until the very end. And I will love you until the very end. And so we are a team. And you're a team. And you're going to go forward when you work together as a team. And you can win this. You win it for the glory of the Lord. And so Paul is reminding us again of the need for this single mind. Remember, the, the theme of the mind, the Christian mind, is a sub-theme in the book of Philippians. Only, okay, one thing, the single mind. So there's joy in our lives as we battle together. We battle the enemy. If we live for Christ and the gospel and we practice Christian teamwork. I remember when I was in high school, our varsity basketball team was having some problems. And uh, our coach made us run and run and run and run. And then when we're all dog tired, he puts us on the bleachers and he says to us, guys, might as well learn to get together now because as Christians, you've got to live together for all of eternity. Okay? So let's learn that we're part of that team and we go forward together in that teamwork. And so we, we do this. Now, notice this here. Uh, here's a couple of ways that we do this. Fast in one spirit with one mind. Okay? Uh, one spirit is not necessarily the Holy Spirit. It could be that. But it's the human spirit, it's the psych, okay? Unity is crucial. And so uh, if you go and you read Ephesians chapter 4, like we did in the men's prayer breakfast yesterday, we, we talked a little bit about the need for unity. Uh, unity is crucial. Um, and so it refers to the redeemed human spirit. And so if we go over to chapter 2, just look with me in, in verse 1. Uh, if there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, okay, if any bowels and mercies, all right, bowels and mercies, chapter 2, verse 1, that's your gut feeling, okay, what's your gut feeling uh, towards your brother and sister? You have compassion and love for them. So in our culture, we celebrate it on Valentine's Day by giving pictures of what organ of our body? The heart. Okay. I don't know. Did they, did they have a Valentine's Day back in the ancient world? If they did, then it was probably a very ugly symbol of guts. <laughs> okay. But it, it, that's your gut feeling. All right. This is where they considered the seat of emotions to be. Not in the heart, but in the gut. And so striving together with that one spirit, that one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Uh, this is very interesting. We've talked about uh, the, the gospel already, the good news that Jesus died for sinners and that any person who will change their mind, that means repent, 
uh, about their relationship with God, that, hey, I can get into heaven through being a good person. No, you accept God's viewpoint, that you're not a good person. There's none righteous, no, not one. And you put your faith in Jesus. You, you turn away from your own effort, and you turn to Christ, then you're saved. You depend upon what Jesus did. So that's the gospel, but now here's a very unique phrase. It's uh, at the end of this, the faith of the gospel, okay? So the word faith here has the definite article that is associated with it. Um, in other words, the unity that's here is the, the demand um, of all the Christian truths. So, hey, listen, here, here's how this relates to what's going on in the American church today. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of Together for the Gospel? Okay, some of you have heard of that. Um, <clears throat> or how many of you have ever heard of something like um, evangelicals and Catholics together? Have you heard of that? Okay. So there's this emphasis within evangelical Christianity that says, hey, let's get together around the gospel but they do so without the definite article and it becomes very wishy-washy and the associations cross over into fellowship with unbelievers and so the definite article the faith is the fundamentals of the faith you can't have fellowship with religious personalities or religious groups that deny the fundamentals of the faith. The sinlessness of Christ, the deity of Christ, the miracles of Christ. My parents had to leave a Bible-believing Baptist church because it went woke back in the 1950s. The pastor stood in the pulpit one Sunday morning and said, you know, the Bible says that Jesus walked on water, but don't believe that for a moment. He pre-planned this on the, the, the edge of the shore. He went out and placed rocks that he could walk on, and they were only a centimeter under the water, and it made it have the appearance that he was walking on water, but he wasn't. He was just walking on stones. And he was dead serious about that that was his new view. So he was confronted about that, and he held his ground. No, Jesus didn't really walk on the water. And so my parents ended up having to leave that church because of the wrong teaching that was there. Um, other things that are the fundamentals, the inerrancy of Scripture. Your Bible doesn't contain mistakes. Your Bible doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. All right? Um, so there are fundamentals that you have to hold to that are part of the faith. And if you reduce any one of them, then you no longer have the gospel. You no longer have the faith. And so there's some scriptures that go along with this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, 1 Timothy 4, verse 20, 2 Timothy 1, 14, and Jude, uh, verse, uh, chapter, uh, verse 3 and verse 20. And so you're contending for the faith of the gospel. All right, so the joy of striving together. We're on one team. We only have one goal here. We only have one mission. Don't get distracted. Keep moving forward. All right, let's look here at the second point of this then, the joy of suffering together. Now it transitions, and let's look at the theology of Christian suffering, and we'll spend some time here. 
Um, so let's go down to verse 28. And in nothing, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him uh, for his sake, having uh, the same conflict which ye see in me and now here to be in me. And so a couple of things here. The joy of suffering together is proof of our salvation. Uh, as a young pastor, I was kind of embarrassed one Sunday morning as uh, one of our deacons uh, dealt with an issue, and uh, now as I think about it, I, I'm pretty sure he did it the right way, but we were renting from, a, from the city, and we were in a public building, and um, we were in the front building and the back building, the community, uh, the senior center was having a pancake breakfast, and um, one of the residents from the community went to the senior center pancake breakfast, and then he saw the sign um, that we had out, a little sandwich board sign pointing in this other building, uh, Cornerstone Baptist Church was meeting for church services. And um, so he saw that sign and he became upset that a church was renting a public building and was allowed to be in a public building. And uh, so he approached and he met our deacon and um, this man was inebriated, he was soused. And um, so he started complaining to our deacon and our deacon said, Oh, yeah? And so I should accept that from someone who's wet behind the ears? You just need to leave. Okay? That's like, whoa, wait a minute. Okay? Well, you know, he, what the deacon was doing was he wasn't giving ground to the fact that we didn't have a right to be in that building. And so there was a critic, there was an adversary that was trying through his inebriated effort and his, share his viewpoint that, hey, separation of church and state, you know what that means? You can't be seen at all, church, just disappear. Okay, that's what he's really trying to say to, to Christians. And that's the view of society today. The church can't be seen anywhere. Right? Disappear, Christians, go hide. Well, there's going to be lots of adversaries. Um, there's an adversarial philosophy of evolution versus creation. There's an adversarial position on human sexuality when God says that he created a husband and a wife to be a family and society says no it's whatever you want it to be there's an adversarial position that says God created man in his own image male and female when you can be whatever you want to be there's adversarial position on uh, just basic morality if it feels good do it no whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of God and so a lot of things that are just basic scripture, the world tries to politicize them and make them a political issue. And then they're going to begin pressing against the church. You know what's happening in the state of California, do you not? That the re-engineering of society, they're just chipping away at every sector of society and the last thing that they're going to isolate and leave it by itself is the church. And then they'll begin picking on the church. Persecution's coming. Be ready. You're going to be considered bigoted and intolerant, divisive. And so you're going to have some hateful adversaries. It's just, it's, it's what's coming, folks. It's just there. It's always been that kind of way. 
and it was for the apostles. Um, and so sometimes when a person accepts Jesus as their savior, they might be under this impression, well, I'm not going to have any more problems now. That's not what Jesus promises, that in the world you will have tribulation. All those that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So to live for the heavenly kingdom many times competes against the earthly kingdom, and those become conflicting values. Now, we have been so blessed in our country for over two and a quarter centuries that the church and the state have been able to work together in a harmonious way. But that day and age is coming to a close, and we'll be getting back to a New Testament approach to our faith. And they suffered in the first century. Um, in the city of Rome, they had to go literally underground. But Stephen became a martyr in Acts chapter 7. You read about those in Hebrews 11, that even in the Old Testament were sawn asunder, torn in two, burned. Uh, you, have you ever heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? How many of you have ever heard of that book? Okay. Um, the church and the state were one in medieval Europe, and they burned a lot of Bible-believing Christians at the stake. So don't think for a moment that you're not going to have adversaries. So verse 28, terrified by your adversaries. You have one chief adversary. What's his name? The devil. Okay. And uh, so he then incites humanity to work against God's kingdom, God's truth. But don't be terrified by this. Uh, literally, don't be shaking in your boots. Don't be afraid. Okay? Now, speak the truth in love. Be bold. Don't be terrified. And when you stand confidently and you stand firmly, there's going to be a spiritual impact upon an unbeliever. It's in the text. Notice what it is. Okay? Don't be terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you salvation and that of God. So they are going to experience by your confident stand their token of perdition. Uh-oh, I'm doomed. I'm damned. So just stand firm. Be polite. Be forceful if you have to be. But stand firm. You don't surrender the gospel. And so here, the, the, the failure of the saints to be terrified by the antagonism of their adversaries was clear evidence of such a nature as to convince these pagans that they were on the road to utter destruction. Clear evidence then to the Philippian believers of their salvation. Okay? So the joy of suffering together is proof of our salvation. So to the unbeliever, it becomes proof of their damnation, but to the believer, it becomes proof of their salvation. Hey, listen, you're doing something right if those that hate God are upset at you. Okay? So just remember that. But you're going to have adversaries. 
Stand your ground. Now, uh, let's look at the second part of this. The joy of suffering together is the gift of the Savior. So let's talk about this as the theology of, of suffering. Okay, Verse 29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So salvation is a gift, right? Do you believe that? Come on, yes? Okay, I'm asking for a call out. That's, what, that's the only thing we're about, the gospel of Jesus. We believe it's a gift. We don't earn it in any way. So that's what is stating here in verse 29. For unto you it has been given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, all right, so salvation is a gift. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can't earn that eternal relationship with God. That's just a gift. You have to receive it as a gift. You come to God on his terms, not yours. Then when you receive it like that, then you're saved. All right, but now notice, not only is salvation a gift, but look with me at verse 29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, what do you think the first phrase there in verse 29 is? Given in the behalf of Christ. You see, 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. For God the Father made him, Jesus, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the Father sent the Son on our behalf, to die for us. Jesus identified as you, the sinner, so that you might be identified as he, the Savior, as righteous as God himself. So there's that substitutionary on behalf of someone idea in the gospel. Well, this is the idea in the theology of Christian suffering, is that you get to suffer now in place of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? God says suffering is a gift. Not a gift that any of us likes, right? Let's be honest. It's not that kind of gift. But what did the Lord say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are you when men revile and persecute you. So that's the state of being. So this is our identity, is that we get to suffer as Christ. We get to suffer on his behalf, for his sake. And so we're suffering for the name of Jesus. This is why in the rest of the New Testament, Paul said, as a Christian, if you're suffering, double check what's going on here. Make sure that you're truly suffering for the name of Christ and not for some stupidity that you're bringing upon yourself. Okay? But sometimes what happens is we bring our own suffering upon ourselves. You want a couple of examples of what we do as a church that brings suffering upon us? Pastors fall into sin and cause disgrace upon the name of Christ all throughout this country. That's stupidity. That's the suffering that we bring on ourselves. You know what another suffering that we bring on ourselves? Not comfortable to say it, but let's have the conversation. The exploitation of children. 
Yeah. You see, that, that's not suffering for the name of Christ. That's suffering because of our own stupidity, our own sin. So if we're going to suffer, let's, let's suffer because we're preaching the gospel. Okay? If people are going to be angry at us, then let's let them be angry because we're telling them the good news that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom we are chief, right? Let judgment begin in the household of God. So don't suffer as a Christian for your own sin. Suffer on behalf of Christ for his sake, for his cause, that only cause. So the presence of conflict in the Christian life then is your suffering. My own mother uh, was saved um, at the age of 18 or 19. And uh, she was engaged to my father. They were about to be married. And so for a few weeks after she was a Christian, there was great conflict in her family. Her stepmother did not like that at all. And uh, it caused conflict with her two sisters and her brother that she became a Christian. And that was a real problem. Um, so it's not so much in our country, but if you get saved in some other country, like a Middle Eastern country, and you become a follower of Jesus, you can be disowned. You can even be martyred. But if you're disowned and you go through that social ostracism, well, then you're suffering for the sake of Jesus. And blessed are you in that regard. So it's granted to us. It's a gift. If we're suffering for ourselves, it would be no privilege. But because we're suffering for and with Christ, it's a high and a holy honor. He suffered for us. He had a willingness to suffer for you. Do you have that willingness to suffer for him? It's the very least that we can do to show our love and gratitude. And so it is given, is from this word used of God in, in his grace that's freely and graciously bestowed upon a believing sinner in the gift of salvation. In the behalf of here is the translation of the, the original preposition, substitutionary aspect of our Lord's death on the cross. It means not only for the sake of, but in the place of. It's been graciously given to the saints to suffer not only for the sake, but in the place of Christ. Suffering in behalf of Christ is of grace. The, the gift of grace is a free gift. It's one of God's gifts to you to suffer as a Christian. Suffering on the behalf of Christ. Now, that's hard for us to understand. Let's just walk through some scriptures here really quickly, and then we'll, we'll bring this to a close. Uh, let's go to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. 2 Timothy uh, 3, verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus, what will happen? Will suffer persecution. You want to stand out and make a difference for Jesus? You're going to suffer. Okay? Um, let's look here at another scripture. Let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, uh, verse 14. 
But an and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. All right. Uh, there are Russian believers that lived through a generation of persecution for their faith. They're much happier as Christians for having identified with the sufferings of Jesus. It was a gift to them. That may be what comes to us. Let's go over to chapter 4. Look at verses 12 through 16. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when from his glory uh, shall be revealed, ye may uh, be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of Christ rests upon you. On your part, he is evil spoken of. Um, on their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God on this behalf. Do you see the great gift that's there? So here are some basic reasons then of why God would allow suffering. Number one, it was beneficial for Jesus. The captain of our salvation uh, suffered for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 8. Therefore, it becomes beneficial for you as his believers. And number three, that it brings joyous assurance of your salvation, your place in Jesus Christ. So we enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. All right, now, you're not alone. This happens to all kinds of Christians. So let's just wrap this message up then. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 30, okay? Uh, notice what verse 30 says here. It says this, having the same conflicts which you saw in me and now here uh, is in me. You're not alone. You're not alone if you're suffering as a Christian. Okay? So, you know what the best defense of the Christian faith is? It's not a stirring message from pastor. It's your consistent life. When you're striving together in team work, and when you're suffering on Christ's behalf, that message is much clearer than a message that a pastor will ever preach. And so it's powerful. This is why Paul exhorts the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So as we wrap this up, here's my concluding statement. The single mind enables us to have joy in the middle of our battles, because it produces in us a consistency, a cooperation amongst ourselves, and confidence in our salvation. We experience the joy of spiritual teamwork as we strive together and suffer together for the sake of the gospel.